In order for you to enjoy spiritual, mental, and relational health, you must be a lover of the truth. You must love the truth in order to be saved. Let me put it this way. You cannot expect to have just a casual relationship with the truth and enjoy health on any level of your life. Remember, we have this great consolation that the church in 1 Timothy 3.15 is said to be the pillar and support of the truth. That's what the church is to be. And that consolation is true. That reality of the church being the pillar and support of the truth is because Jesus himself is the truth. Truth for you and I as Christians is not an abstract concept. Truth is uh, a person. Jesus Christ embodies truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So, every morning that you arise and you begin your day, you have this great consolation that you possess the truth because you are in Christ, who is himself the truth. And that means that you are in the household of God, the people of God, which is to be the pillar in support of the truth. The problem is, is that the churches in America, the pulpits of America, propagate lies. Not all of them, thanks be to God. But the majority. Denominationalism is a consequence of lies. <laughs> it's a half-truth. And remember, the devil is never more like the devil than when he's lying. He is the father of lies. When he speaks, he's speaking out of his own nature. And those who belong to him are also speaking out of their own nature. So you have the truth that's embodied in the person of Jesus Christ, who is in himself our great consolation. And then you have the lie that is in the world. And it takes many forms, has many applications within politics, society, economics, and sadly, within the false religious system of the world, much of which masks as Christianity. So recently, I was um, having my morning coffee, and I began to consider uh, with some fair amount of grief the, way that I, the ways that I have been lied to throughout my Christian experience by preachers. It is my great privilege to be called to be a preacher, to be a witness to the risen Christ, to convey the truth of Scripture in the best way I know how under the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And it's also part of my job is to help equip you to discern and reject the lies that you hear. So I was having my coffee, and I, and I just began to list down casually many of the lies that I've heard 
from the pulpits, lies that preachers tell. And I was astonished that before any time had passed, I had listed 17 different lies, and I'm not done yet. Now, if the truth sets us free, what do lies do to you? They put you in bondage. Lying is toxic. You will never be healthy, spiritually, mentally, or relationally, unless you become a lover of the truth. You must become a lover of the truth. Let me say it this way. You cannot be a casual lover. You cannot be a part-time lover of the truth. You cannot have a casual uh, acquaintance with the truth and be healthy on any level of your of your being. No, truth demands that you be sold out to it, primarily as it's revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ through Scripture. So to that degree, and to the numbers of those who are lovers of the truth, that defines the pillar and support of the truth, which is the household of God. So we are to be lovers of truth. We are to convey the truth. We are to rejoice in the truth. And we are to reject lies. I remember being in a membership class many years ago, listening to a pastor tell about what his church believed and what, what the uh, uh, how the church functioned and operated. And, and I was quite comfortable and even happy about much of what I was hearing. And then he went into this long, twisted, distorted perversion of Scripture in order to support his view on tithing. When somebody questioned his view, he even grew angry and threatened that without tithing, the church would not exist at all. I had no idea. I had always understood that Jesus said that the uh, that that he was the confession upon which the truth, his lordship, his deity, his humanity, everything that he is was the, was the uh, basis upon which the church would be built. Upon this confession shall the church be built. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But according to this guy, it was tithing upon which the church was built. See what I mean? This is how it goes. And what I'm saying to you today is that you do not have to buy into these half-truths. The devil traffics in half-truths. And at some point in your Christian life, you have to be fed up. You have to say, I've had enough of half-truths. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as revealed in the Scripture does not require you to hang your head and live with half-truths just to be a member of a church. Well, let me just share with you 
these 17 points. I'm not going to elaborate on them. I'm just going to introduce you to them this morning. And then over the next several weeks, perhaps months, I will elaborate on each one of these and why they are lies. My purpose is to equip you biblically to show you the truth of Scripture, how it exposes each one of these lies, so that you can be more discerning and keep you and your family free from these lies. Again, these are lies that preachers tell regularly. Okay, so let me just list these. First one is infant baptism. Infant baptism is a carry forth of the New Testament, of Old Testament circumcision. It's a continuance of the old covenant uh, with Abraham brought forward into new covenant application. That is a lie. New Testament circumcision is a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. Baptism is not New Testament circumcision. Infant baptism is a lie. Now I realize I probably just ruffled many of your feathers. I've gotten you, maybe some of you have already just decided you're going to hang up and turn me off right now. I hope not. Please, please, hear me out. Okay, number two, that there exists a covenant of grace. And since the Reformation, and one of the famous reformers, Ulrich Zwingli, out of um, Switzerland, uh, had to develop a theology of infant baptism to support infant baptism, and he manufactured a covenant of grace out of Genesis 3, in which the promise that out of the woman's seed would come a Savior. They see that as a covenant, God making a covenant, a covenant of grace. It's an overarching covenant, and the and the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and even the New Covenant are, are mere administrations of the overarching covenant of grace. It's not something that was even begun to be taught before uh, the 15, 1600s. And then a fellow by the name of Bollinger codified it, Calvin taught it, and of course, the rest, as they say, is history. Listen, we are under a new covenant. And the new covenant is the complete fulfillment of all previous biblical covenants, including the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant. They're all fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is himself, mark this now, the new covenant. The new covenant is not in parchment. It's not in written in stones. It's not in a museum someplace. Jesus himself is the new covenant. So there is no covenant of grace. Number three, the clergy mediate Christ to you. In other words, the priesthood still exists. That somehow the clergyman or clergywoman in some churches uh, stands between you and Christ. The rector the vicar of Christ, 
the Pope is called. And in many liturgical tra traditions, including the Anglican tradition, uh, the local parish priest is still referred to as a vicar of Christ, or the rector of the church, which means he has authority to preside over the sacraments, to say special words over them that make him the body and blood of Christ, to uh, absolve you of sins. In other words, to mediate between you and Christ. But the Bible teaches, listen carefully, that there is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. Period. Now, I have a Master's of Divinity. I have a doctor in ministry. I've been in pastoral care for decades. And the last thing I you want from me is to think of myself as a mediator between you and Christ. My job is to teach and to offer you pastoral care. My job is one of servitude. I'm to be washing your feet not elevated over you. I'm not to present myself as someone who you must come through in order to get to Christ. So that's a lie. The clergy does not mediate Christ to you. Okay. Number four, God has two people, the nation of Israel and the church. That's another lie, that God has two plans one for national Israel, and one for the church. That came out of the what we call dispensationalism, or Darbyism. came out of the 1800s when a man by the name of John Nelson Darby began to teach that somehow uh, God had a, a plan for the Gentiles and a plan for national Israel. That is a lie. There is one people of God, one reconstituted people of God, made of Jew and Gentile, united in Christ. There is one new man. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 11, will explain that to you. Okay, number five. Tithing is mandatory. This is probably the most prevalent, prolific lie in America today. Tithing is mandatory. If you don't tithe, you're under a curse. Uh, the curse of Malachi chapter 3. Here again is where preachers just cast aside the eschatological and covenantal framework of the truth of the gospel in order to impose this lie upon you, to place the burden of tithing on your shoulders. They will tell you that if you tithe, God will bless you. He will provide for you. Whereas Jesus said quite clearly in Matthew 6 that God provides for his children because he's their father, not because they tithe. Consider the lilies. Consider the ravens. He didn't say consider tithing. Tithing was a, a tax. It was like an income tax prescribed for national Israel in order to maintain the temple worship and to care for the poor. It was the welfare system. It was the clerical system. It was the governmental tax of a theocracy called Israel that is no longer in place. Now, we are to be givers, 
and you are welcome to give 10%. You're welcome to give 8, 10, 12, 15, 20, whatever, whatever you want to give. There's nothing wrong with taking 10% of your gross income and giving it to people or to the church or whatever you want. But to tell you that God will only bless you financially if you give 10% of your gross income, by the way, not your net, your gross, or that you will be under a curse. You'll be, as uh, Robert Morris says, opening the doors to demons in your finances if you don't talk. That is an unmitigated lie. So, that's probably the most prevalent lie that preachers will be more than happy to tell you. Okay. Tithing is mandatory. Number six, church attendance is required. Now, we should gather to exhort one another, to encourage one another, to enjoy fellowship, to worship together. But how many of you, if you miss church on Sunday, feel bad? Now, if you're uncomfortable staying home from church because you miss the fellowship, you miss the worship, you miss being there, wonderful. I mean, that makes sense. If you feel guilty or somehow believe that God is not happy with you if you miss church, then you've bought the lie. Your acceptance between before God is not grounded in your church attendance. God is not keeping score. Nor is God angry with you. That's another lie. In fact, that could be number seven. God is angry with you. I'm going to write that down. You can see this is developing even as we talk here. Now, God is angry with the wicked because they're wicked. And wickedness distorts the image of God. It distorts creation. It perverts the gospel. We should be angry with that as well. After the model of our Heavenly Father. There is a righteous anger. And God is angry. But if you are in Christ, he is not angry with you. You are not destined for wrath. You are destined for blessing, for salvation, for redemption. Your Father will discipline you as a good father disciplines his children, but it isn't because you're under his wrath. Nor will you ever be under his wrath. Okay. So God is angry with you is another lie. I had a woman once stop. I preached a sermon on this called God is not angry with you. God is not mad at you. She stopped me in the grocery store. She recognized me and said, thank you for your sermon I grew up believing and being told that God was angry and that I shouldn't be do anything to make him angry with me. And it really frightened me as a young girl. And I've grown up thinking that there's any moment I could say or do something that's going to make God angry with me. See how cruel these lies are? These are not benign, brothers and sisters. Lying preachers are deadly. So God is not angry with you if you are in Christ. Number eight, that there's a secret rapture. Whole theologies have been built, whole systems have been built on this. 
I mean, we all probably remember the late great planet Earth, and um, and we remember, of course, uh, being left behind that series of books that turned into movies and into spectacles and trinkets and T-shirts and wristbands and. <laughs> The secret, there is no secret rapture. Nowhere does the Bible teach a secret rapture where the church is going to get whisked away and there's going to be piles of empty clothes laying around and cars crashing on the freeway and, and buses and planes crashing without pilots. And You see, if you, even if you exercise common sense, you will have to realize that this stuff is just nonsensical there is no secret rapture and I'll elaborate that on that more later okay the believer can become possessed in other words if you have some besetting sin if you have some compulsion if you have some addiction if you have some fault in your character and you are desperately struggling with it and you can't find your way out of it it seems uh, many people will tell you well you know it's because you have the demon of alcoholism or the demon of lust or the demon of greed or the demon of gluttony that's a lie that is pure unmitigated lie Nowhere does the Bible teach, nor are there any examples of any believer being demon-possessed. So don't let the devil freak you out. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The presence of the living God dwells in you. You are, are numbered among his holy people, sanctified by his presence kept by the power of God. Don't let anyone lie to you in telling you that because you struggle with some besetting sin, it's because you're demon-possessed. <clears throat> okay, number 10. Believers can lose salvation. That's one of the oldest lies, that somehow you made your choice to believe in Jesus and you can choose to stop believing and lose your salvation. You can walk away from the Lord. The Bible teaches that if anyone walks away from the Lord permanently, finally, without regret, without remorse, that they were never in the Lord in the first place. On a positive note, it teaches that uh, no one can come to the Father unless, uh, excuse me, no one can come to Christ unless the Father draws him. And Jesus will raise him up on the last day. Philippians 1.6 tells us that he who has begun a good work in you will perfect it unto the day of Christ Jesus. Peter tells us we are kept by the power of God unto a salvation to be revealed in the last day. Now we are, we are in Christ. And he will never leave you, nor will he ever forsake you. If you know someone who's been a professing Christian and is no longer, has renounced his or her faith, then they were never in Christ in the first place. They may have looked like they were. They may have sounded like they were. 
but a genuine believer, one who is a regenerate person. It is the nature of regeneration that you are permanently transferred into the kingdom of God. You are changed into a new nature. And you can't just walk away from that nature. You are no longer um, in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the spirit. Romans chapter 8. And those are absolutes. You don't move between the flesh and the spirit. One day you're in the flesh, the next day you're in the spirit. I've heard people tell me, well, I had a really bad day. I yelled at this person. I kicked the dog and I didn't, you know... uh, I burned the dinner, yes. I was really in the flesh that day. That's not how it works. Romans 8 is clear that you are either in the flesh or you are in the spirit. And if you're in the flesh, if your mind is set on the flesh, then you're you're not a believer. You have been translated into the kingdom of God. You are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So these are absolute statements. Okay. Believers can't lose their salvation, and you are secure in the fact that God's work, because it is God's work. The gifts of the Spirit have ceased. This is another common lie. And so what it produces is what? A very cerebral dead orthodoxy now do we do we believe that that some of the people who profess to be pentecostals and and, and have ecstatic wild visions and experiences and tromping stomping worship that, that all that has anything to do with the spirit the gifts of the spirit no that's a lie too the gifts of the spirit are given for the building up and the edification of the church, for the fellowship, for the comfort and edification and maturation of the church. They aren't for you to, um, your self-aggrandizement, to promote yourself as something special. They're not intended just for your personal comfort. They are there to be in a point of edification and encouragement for the whole church. So the gifts of the Spirit have not ceased. Now, there are those today running around calling themselves apostles and prophets. They're not. There is no continued revelation. That brings us to number 12. Revelation has continued. That, that the Bible is one only the first part of revelation. And some of these guys running around today, men and women, who are claiming to be apostles and prophets and have a new revelation, they're liars. There are only a select group of men who were apostles who had the authority to convey to you and I the revelation of God in Christ Jesus. And they have done that. It's recorded for us in the pages of the New Testament. And we ought not take away from it. And we dare not add to it. Number 13. The King James Bible is inspired. That's another lie. The King James Bible is a wonderful translation. I love it. I have several copies of it. Sometimes if I'm feeling a little blue, I'll just read something out of the King James Bible and meditate on it. And it, the poetry, the the grandeur of the language is so 
nurturing, so encouraging. Not to mention, of course, just the content, the truth that's revealed in Scripture. So it's a beautiful translation. It's an it was used by uh, exclusively for hundreds of years, but it is not inspired. Only the original autographs, the original Greek and Hebrew text is inspired. The translators of the King James Bible never believed that they were creating an inspired Bible. Rather, they were creating a translation, a wonderful translation, of the inspired text. But it is only a translation. It is the Word of God because it is a translation of the Word of God into the English language. Okay. But the King James Bible is not inspired as is the Greek text. I mean, I've even heard people say, well, you know, we should take the King James Bible and correct the Greek text with it. That's how nonsensical some of this stuff can get. Number 14, America is a Christian nation. I don't doubt that there were Christians involved in the founding of the United States. That doesn't mean that America is a Christian nation. There are no Christian nations. There's only the, the nation of the household of God, the people of God. And that is not a national nation anymore. It's not a national body any longer. We are the people of God living in a fallen world among the nations to whom we are to carry the gospel. But to say that America is a Christian nation, God help us. Have you read the papers? Have you seen the news? Have you seen the lying, the chaos, the violence, the perversion? Anyone who thinks America is a, America is a Christian nation has lost their mind. <laughs> America is not a Christian nation. Don't let anyone tell you it is. It's the best going I'm grateful to be an American. I'm grateful to live in a constitutional republic where I have rights, especially the right to say what I'm saying right now, and that is America is not a Christian nation. Number 15, healing is on demand. That's a very popular one these days. If you don't get healed, then you don't have enough faith. That's the cruelty of that teaching. Healing is on demand is a very prominent lie. We don't demand anything of God. We come to him with humility, seeking mercy. We don't stand up and claim healing. We don't promise people that if we pray for them, they will be automatically healed. There's nothing of that going on today. Now, does God heal? Absolutely. And he heals in His, according to his will and his time. But we don't we, we cannot package the blessings and power of God and tell people that you have this special touch that if you lay your hands on them they will be healed. Healing is a gift of God, no question, but it's a gift to the one who's healed, not the one who prays. So healing on demand is a lie. Number sixteen faith is our contribution to salvation. There's only, I can only begin to, to 
deal with that. I mean, faith is a gift of God. Romans, excuse me, Ephesians 2, 6 through 10 tells us that. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Faith is not something that we bring to the table. This faith is not something that we add to the finished work of Christ that completes the circle so that the outcome is that we are saved. No, faith is a gift of God. Regeneration, in fact, precedes saving faith. Faith is a gift. Not only has God in his Son accomplished your salvation, in regeneration, being born of the Spirit, he actually imparts to you the gift of faith. Saving faith is a gift. It's not something that lies inherent within the sinner that they bring to the table. Number 17, the will is free to choose Christ. This is one of the oldest lies. Man was created with free will, and he lost that free will when he came under the bondage of sin, enslavement to sin. The Bible teaches that the sinner is enslaved to sin. And the will is not free to choose Christ because it's the will is subject to the nature. A sinner sins not because uh, they're anything but a sinner. So it's important to understand that the um, nature is what's at work here. And the nature only wants what it wants, and the will, therefore, will only will what it, what the nature demands. And, the, and, the, and there's nothing about fallen human nature that will choose Christ. No, we choose Christ, we make a decision for Christ, we receive Christ, whatever language you want to use, because of a work of grace upon our mind, will, and heart that frees our will. Free will is only restored to us in Christ. And we only and we know, let me say to tell you this, if we know we have re- had free will restored because of the proper use of the will. And what is the proper use of the will? To discern and do the will of God. That's the proper use of the will. Okay, and finally that the tripart division of the law exists. In other words, there's a moral law, there's a civil law, and there's a ceremonial law. And that somehow the law is divided up into three parts. And while the civil and the ceremonial law has been abolished, the moral law still exists. Now, who wants to argue with being moral, right? I mean, that, this, is, this is the argument that they make, that there's a moral law that still applies, and it's found in the Ten Commandments, and, and you should still subscribe to the Ten Commandments. We should hang the Ten Commandments in our schools and in our churches and in our, in our civil uh, laws and, excuse me, our, our civic houses of government. But there is no moral law, per se, The law is the law. It's not divided up in three parts. You can't choose one part and not the other. Uh, Paul is very clear in Galatians that if you choose to live by one part of the law, you must keep the whole law. So there is no tripart division of the law. Now, we who have the Spirit, 
We walk in the Spirit. We walk bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And there's nothing more moral. If morality is important to us, and it is, than walking in the Spirit so that we do not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. But moralism is an outcrop of heresy. It's a cheap counterfeit for the walking in the Spirit. This was the problem with the Pharisees. They looked good on the outside, but inside they were full of dead men's bones and all kinds of corruption. So we must guard against this lie. This is something that came out of the Reformation. It's a lie. It was intended to create some kind of basis to impose the Ten Commandments upon a state church society where the people were Christians by virtue of being citizens. And so they used the law, uh, the Ten Commandments, as if it was a uh, theocracy again, to impose morality on the people, to demand morality of the people. So they had to maintain some sense of law, so they created this doctrine of the tripart division. It actually goes back as far as Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas. It's a convenient way of explaining away the civil and the, and the ceremonial law, but still imposing the law upon the shoulders of Christians. And the Bible cannot be clearer that you are no longer under law. If you are walking in the Spirit, if you have the Spirit of God within you, the Spirit of God indwelling you, uh, causing you to walk in the character and the actions of Christ after his model and his image, replaces the old covenant law, the Torah, T-O-R-A-H. In its entirety. Isn't it interesting that men are always trying to find a way to impose on you the law. Instead of encouraging you to walk in the Spirit. And encouraging you and teaching you how to walk in the Spirit. Instead, they just impose upon you the law. Well, that's the time we have for today. 17 points. Is it 17 now? Did I just <laughs> increase it to 18? It's actually 18. The uh, infant baptism, the covenant of grace, the clergy mediating Christ to you, that God has two people, tithing is mandatory, church attendance is required, God is angry with you, the rapture is a secret rapture, the believer can become possessed, believers can lose salvation, the gifts of the Spirit have ceased, revelation continues, the King James Bible is inspired, America is a Christian nation, healing is on demand, Faith is our contribution to salvation. The will is free to choose Christ, the tripart division of the law. These are all lies. And you won't have to go far on Sunday to walk through the doors of a church and sit through the homily, sit through the sermon, and hear one or more of these lies taught you. So what does that mean? That means we are in an incredibly perilous time in church history. Men are more interested in promoting their own self-interests and their agenda, their system of theology, than they are being the church, the pillar and support of the truth. So you can only be discerning. Use critical thought 
Don't believe something just because some preacher, especially some preacher on TV, 98.9% of what comes out of Christian television is lies. Don't buy into it. And if you want to turn one of those stations on for the mere entertainment value, then go right ahead. But that's, that's all it is. It's, it's almost laughable what gets taught on these Christian television stations. But 98.9% of it is lies. Remember, the devil traffics in half-truths. Be discerning. Be wise. Pray for wisdom. Pray for discernment. And learn to rest your consolation and that of your loved ones, your friends, those dear to you, in the great consolation we have, that truth is not an abstract concept. Truth is a person, the person and work, finished work on your behalf of Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>